Well, good morning again from Kingachi family. Uh, it's good to see you all again today. Um, and as we do continue to meet, we're going to continue to move, for, uh, to move forward in our sermon series, uh, The Story, where we explore the grand narrative that God has been planning from the beginning of the universe uh, till its very end. Now, so far, we've been on quite of a journey uh, from the creation. We talked about the fall. We talked about how Abraham and Israel uh, were God's chosen people and God's chosen nation. And today, we're going to be covering a passage from Deuteronomy. And we're also going to be discussing one of the, in my opinion, my, sorry, in my opinion, at least, uh, one of the more misunderstood parts of the Bible, um, as we're going to talk about the law today. But before we talk about the law, um, I was recently thinking back to a show I watched maybe about a year or two ago, The Sopranos. Um, and an interesting theme in that show that's developed is the relationship between Tony and his son, Tony Jr., or, or AJ. And throughout the series, we basically see that Tony's son, AJ, is just incredibly rebellious. He, he refuses to listen to instruction, right? If you, if you guys remember the, those episodes, uh, he refuses to abide by the rules at school. And throughout the series, he would basically just, literally just, he would just do whatever he wants. And so you'd always see his parents lecture him and tell him, AJ, you, you, know, you just can't do whatever you want. You know, there's, there's rules. You have to obey rules. You have to show self-control. You have to take up responsibility at home and life and as a student. Right? You just can't do whatever you want. And, of course, the grand irony or the great irony is that even Tony, you know, Tony Soprano would tell this to his child, but it's Tony who modeled this reckless lifestyle for his son to follow. Tony lived a lifestyle where he believed he was literally above the law. Uh, Tony believed he had the right, the power to do whatever he wanted in order to bring pleasure into his own life. He, of course, he disobeyed federal law. He, dis, uh, he also disobeyed the laws in the mafia underworld, uh, but he also refused to obey the laws at home. He refused to take up responsibility as a husband and as a father at home. And because of such a reckless, free lifestyle, it basically led to everyone around him dying, um, and even his own relationship with his family began to crumble. And so, why are we talking about Tony Soprano and his son, AJ, today? Often, I think when we think of God's law, or when we reflect on God's law, we might have a gut reaction that's a lot like Tony Soprano or AJ, in that we see God's law as something that restricts us, that prevents us from moving forward. And as we look at biblical law today, we're going to be looking at several things to kind of address maybe this misconception. So we're going to be looking at its purpose. We're going to be looking at some common misconceptions of the law. And we're also going to be talking about what the law really is, what the law truly is, and how to actually look at the law in a way that it brings goodness and fulfillment into our lives, even as Christians. So as we look at our passage today, we're going to be looking at the book of Deuteronomy. And if you were to look at this book from a chronological perspective, a lot of the book of Deuteronomy was actually a farewell speech uh, given by Moses to the Israelites as they prepare to enter into the promised land. So chronologically, these Israelites, they've, they've finished their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The older, rebellious generation has passed on, and this newer generation is about to take their place. And Moses, as he realizes he's close to his own death, he teaches the younger generation one final time 
what exactly they are to do to foster a healthy relationship with each other and with God. And it's at this point we reach our passage today from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 19. So please read with me. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's command and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good? To the Lord, your God belongs to heaven, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord has set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. So circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Now, since we're talking about God's law, I, I think it would be helpful to maybe discuss, first of all, what is God's law? And to understand what the law is, I believe it would be helpful to understand the law from God's perspective, to see what the purpose of the law is. And one thing we're to learn about its purpose is that the law was meant to be a revelation of God's character. Uh, God's historical action and his law always went hand in hand. His historical action and his law always went hand in hand in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If you're actually, if you're to read through the book of Deuteronomy, you would actually see Moses use a very simple formula over and over and over again to encourage the people to follow God's law. So what's this formula that Moses would use? So Moses, he would first remind the people of the great work God has done in liberating them from Egypt or how God showed love to the Israelites in the wilderness and even forgave them of their sins despite the whole golden calf incident uh, which Moses actually talks about one chapter before in, in Deuteronomy 9. And in response to God's love, care, concern, and forgiveness, Moses would then say, therefore. Or in our passage, he says, and now, Israel, what does the Lord ask from you? And of course, the Israelites, they're commanded to be righteous, to be just, and to be holy. But the reality is the only way these Israelites were to understand what righteousness, justice, and holiness is if, if God modeled what all those attributes are like, if God modeled righteousness, justice, as justice and holiness in their midst. In Leviticus um, 11.45, Moses, he actually makes this exact point when God, through Moses, tells the Israelites this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God, right? He shows his tremendous love, his tremendous holiness, and now he says, therefore, be holy because I am holy, because I modeled what holiness is like for you. Or in the New Testament, we see the same idea come up again with God's command being modeled um, after God's own character when Jesus washed the disciples' feet and said to them this, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And so we see that these commands were a demonstration of what God modeled before the Israelites in the first place. 
And as the Israelites were to live out God's holy command, they would serve as a living testament to the character of God in this world. Just as Adam in Genesis was meant to represent God's character and rule in the world, the Israelites were meant to represent God's love, justice, and righteousness in the world. And through the Israelites' obedience to God's law, other nations would finally be able to witness God's own character, God's own holiness, God's own grace. And these people from other nations, they would be able to witness this not as some sort of abstract concept that you read out of a textbook or that you hear from a sermon. Rather, these people would be literally able to walk into Israel. They would be able to live within Israel and experience a nation where justice and holiness were so real, where it was so present, so tangible, that they would be able to step into God's kingdom that is here on earth. And so we see that the purpose of the law was for the benefits of humanity, that through the law being lived out obediently in society, the nature and the character of God would be made known throughout the world. That as people witness the holiness of Israel in their moral purity, in their pursuit of justice, and in their care and concern for the marginalized, foreign nations would also be able to understand God's own character, and that God is holy, that God is just, and that God does show concern for the marginalized. And so that's the purpose of the law, to reflect God's own nature and character. However, I think many Christians also, at the same time, uh, they might misunderstand the law, or they might somehow even think that the law is evil or, or not good or something that should not be followed. So I think it might be helpful maybe to explore some of these common misconceptions and how later we should properly look at the law. And one way, or one misunderstanding that we have when it comes to God's law is that we see it as a restriction of freedom. Um, I think anyone who's who's ever been a teenager or even as, a, as an adult, um, if we're honest, we, we really don't like being told what to do, right? Um, especially here in America. Uh, in American culture, some of us might actually see this rebellious nature as something that is good, right? We would say like, wow, look at that person, like stick to their guns and really do what they want to do despite pressure from authorities or from the government. And by making such a statement, or by making such a value judgment, in reality, what we are saying is that we idolize our individual freedom over everything else. We idolize our individual freedom over everything else. I'll take the risk of offending everyone here today, um, so let me ask for your forgiveness first. But when you look at the words and rhetoric used in both right-wing and left-wing ideology, both parties use the same appeal to individual freedom. It's the rhetoric of doing what I want to do, no matter who tells me or what tells me otherwise. And so it's no surprise that when we, as Westerners, or we as Americans, when we encounter God's law, we see it as a restriction of freedom. We look at God's law and think, wow, God does not want me to do this or that. Like, how am I supposed to have fun? How am I supposed to get rich? How am I supposed to do this or that? We see God's law as something that is restrictive, as something that is coercive. And so how do we address this misunderstanding? We'll take a look at that, we'll take a look at that in our next sermon point. But let's just quickly address another misconception. 
And so if the first misconception is, that the, is the idea that the law is some sort of coercive or restrictive force, another misconception of the law is that we look at it theologically one-sided. Martin Luther, he believed that God's law basically had two purposes. Uh, the first purpose of God's law is so that humanity doesn't just devolve into like total chaos where we start mistaking, you know, murder or stealing as something that is good, right? So it's, it's like a fence that kind of restricts humanity from just like murdering and killing each other. But the second purpose of God's law, and one I want to focus on a little bit more today, is that Luther saw God's law as something that is convict, uh, as the primary way of convicting us as sinners. And the thing is, not only does Luther see the law as something that convicts us that we have done something that is morally wrong, but it also creates within us an incredibly deep sense of hopelessness as we realize and acknowledge that it is absolutely impossible to be morally perfect. No matter how hard we try, we can never attain this moral purity that the law demands. And because we are not morally perfect, we are therefore sinners, and the law convicts us of this deep, deep truth. And if you were to look at Luther's own life, his, his life, you know, many biographies have been written about him, you'd actually see that Luther was almost driven to the point of insanity with this second aspect. Uh, Luther always saw himself as a sinner, and it got to a point where even Luther did not know whether he was saved or not. This is while he was still at the Catholic Church. And since Luther was part of the Catholic Church, he would go on and do hours and hours of confession, not, not once a week, but literally like every single day he would meet with a fellow priest, confess every single sin he can think of that he has done today, that he's doing right now. And it got to a point where even the priest was like, man, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> you got to calm down here. Like, this, it's, it's, it's serious, but not that serious. And the thing is, if we look at the law one-sided as something that is only convicting us of sin, we might tend to get incredibly neurotic as well, because we fail to see the positive side of the law. And so, so far we have two misconceptions, two big misconceptions. We have a coercive force, law as a coercive force, and second, the law as something that just gives us a deep sense of shame and neuroticism. And if all of these are improper or incomplete ways of looking at God's law, uh, then it's no wonder that the law is one of the most misunderstood aspects of Scripture. We're looking at the law literally with like one eye closed and the other eye with like nearsighted or farsighted vision. And so how do we actually look at God's law properly? How do we look at it with both eyes open, with 20-20 vision, with a holistic perspective of God's law? And so let's explore what that actually is like. Whereas some people see God's law as a coercive force, the proper way to understand the law is that it's actually a privilege. Um, growing up, I had one of those quote-unquote cool uncles, right? This is, this is the uncle that allowed me to do all the irresponsible stuff I probably should not do as a kid, uh, or the uncle who got me all the unhealthy food I definitely should not be eating. And as a kid, honestly, if, we, if we've had that uncle, right, that was our favorite uncle. We loved this uncle because he would set us free, right? We think our parents would restrict us, restrict us. But this, this uncle, you would just come with a breath of fresh air and just let us do whatever we want, right? Jump off the roof of the house and into the pool, you know, why not? Ice cream for lunch and dinner, you know, go ahead. You know, so I remember, 
I remember there's one time I had, you know, I was coming back home from obviously hanging out with this uncle. I, I had a great time. And, you know, obviously when I get home there, I had to do chores, I had to do this and that. And I was very frustrated at my dad. I was very angry at my dad. And I asked my dad this, this one question. I asked my dad, why can't you be more like uncle? And this is, you know, if you think about it, this is actually an incredibly hurtful question because I'm basically saying to my dad that I don't think you're a good father. And my dad's response was this. He didn't get angry at me, thankfully. <laughs> he was very calm, he was very rational, and this was my dad's response. He said this. He said, at the end of the day, your uncle does not have to bring you home and raise you. Your uncle does not have to worry about your health. Your uncle does not have to worry about whether you do well in school or not. Your uncle has no responsibilities for you and he has no expectations from you except just to have fun. And that is not love. That is not love. The fact that we are given rules on proper conduct and proper living is because we are loved. We are given God's law because we are loved. And any loving parents, they, they innately understand this as they teach their child right and wrong, not because the parent desires to be restrictive or coercive, but rather for the health and growth of the own child, the parents would lovingly guide their child to do what is good, to do what is right. And sometimes doing what is right means that there are certain things that we should not do, even if we had the power to do it. And so it's the same for Israel. It is because God loved Israel that God gave them the law. Out of all the nations in the world, God chose this one poor nomadic slave nation as his own treasured possession, as his own kingdom of priests, as his own holy nation. And because he shows such love and such favor to them, God instructs the Israelites and teaches them what is right and what is wrong for their own well-being and for their joy. And so from this perspective, we see that the law is not something that is necessarily restrictive or coercive. Rather, we see that it's actually a path to living what is a good life. It is a path to goodness and a good life. A good life that shows up personally within ourselves. A good life that shows up in how we interact with others within society. And also a life that is filled with goodness and love as we have a proper relationship with our Father in heaven as well. And so understood this way, we see that the law is actually a privilege. It is a privilege given to those whom God loves. So that's the first misconception kind of clarified. Let's move on to the second misconception of the law as something that just convicts us as sinners. And earlier, I said that this is kind of looking at the law from a one point of view, from theologically one-sided view. And the thing is, it's actually true. The law does convict us as sinners, right? This is the point made not just by Luther, but by Paul as well. However, there's also a positive aspect of the law that we don't often talk about or we don't often hear about in that the law is an honor. If you were to think about the final words that Jesus gave before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gave his disciples the command to make disciples of all nations, right, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you were to think about that command or that law that Jesus gives us with, with a little bit of clarity, you'd actually begin to see, like, wow, this is, this is actually a very ridiculous command you give us, God. Jesus, through that command, 
is essentially trusting the entire fate of the world, the entire salvation of souls of all nations to these disciples who rejected him like two weeks ago and refused to believe in his resurrection. Not a very well thought out plan, right, by Jesus. And although it is true that the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples and empowers us as well to make disciples of all nations, we have to understand that the people that God used to change the world are fundamentally flawed and broken. None of us here are perfect people by any stretch of the imagination. But the fact that God trusts us enough to save the world and to change the world shows that God bestows upon us a great honor. God has chosen you specifically with all your flaws, with all your imperfections, to be an ambassador of Christ because he trusts you enough with his message and he trusts that you will have the capacity to make an impact in the world around you and the lives that you come in contact with. And so when we think back to the role, to Israel's role of being a blessing to all nations by being a holy nation, we see that God trusts the Israelites enough for them to be his ambassadors. God, through his love, gives Israel the honor of being God's chosen instrument in changing and saving the world. And so when we look at the law from a holistic point of view, although it does show us to be sinners, which again is 100% true, it also shows that we are given a tremendous honor by God and that he has chose us to be his ambassadors within his creation. That just as Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and to multiply and essentially cover the entire face of the world with the image of God, both Israel in the Old Testament and Christians in the New Testament were given the same command to be a blessing to all nations and to cover the whole earth, the whole of God's creation with his goodness and with his holiness wherever we go. That is our chosen mission, a chosen mission that is given to us because he loves us, because he trusts us enough. And so as we end our sermon today, I, I hope that this has hopefully opened your eyes to look at the law from a biblical perspective, to see the law as something that is fundamentally good because it actually does bring goodness and life into our lives and into the world around us. And so, brothers and sisters, as you go about the rest of your day and the rest of your week, I encourage you to ponder and to think about how you can bring this goodness into your life and into the lives of those around you through obedience to God's law, to count it as an honor to be chosen by God in order to demonstrate what true goodness and what true holiness looks like. And truly, what a, what a tremendous gift, what a tremendous honor we are given by God here today through the law. But why don't we come together in prayer? Heavenly Father, today we, we do confess. We do confess that we are sinners. Your law indeed has convicted us of our own sins. But at the same time, we also see the tremendous grace of your law, that you have given it to us because you love us, to teach us right from wrong and to teach us how to love you more and more as you have loved us. And we're thrilled to learn that you even honor us through giving, through giving the law to us, 
And because of that, today we can finally understand how all the saints of old can find joy and delight in your law, how they can say it is sweeter than honey because in your law, honestly, we find you, Lord. In your law, we see your holiness, we see your justice, and we see your concern. And we pray that as we come face to face with you through the law, we find out that you are alone are good, that you alone are just. And we pray, Lord, that we will model our lives in such a similar manner. So let us live out the goodness of the gospel message today and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.